welcome to the Layer East podcast. Today, my guest is Jeffrey Warnick. Jeffrey is a seasoned independent private investor in various sectors across the global economy. My first question is, given the state of the economy in the world, where, where are we now? Where are we headed? This, is, this came at us from left field. Most of us didn't realize this was going to happen. Uh, I think that uh, with respect to not realizing what will happen, when you have a fragile system, I mean, I think, I think there are a number of answers to that question. So I think that one, if you have a fragile system, when anything goes wrong, then it exposes the fragility that exists in the system. So we, 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 we live in a world where everybody has expanded their balance sheets uh, and uh, has created a lot of debt and we've created a significant amount of financial fragility uh, and basically savings are only through a few companies that have huge balance sheets and a lot of savings and otherwise everybody else is pretty much uh, in, uh, in indentured servitude to banks because they owe a lot more money than they could. Between what you owe banks and what you owe government, if you figured out, if you capitalized the, um, the, the debt that bank governments have often on balance sheet, you really realize that for most people, you know, their, their, their incomes will not cover all the debt obligations they have, either directly on their own behalf or indirectly on behalf of what, what, how much government has spent uh, with the assumption that, that uh, government borrowing is a free lunch and they can borrow whatever they want uh, for as long as they want at as low cost as they want because they can continue to buy the debt and as long as they can print the money, there's no consequences associated with that. So I think that uh, this, this, this virus, is, is, uh, this coronavirus, is a, is a cover for the fragility that had existed in the global financial system for quite a while, and it's exposed that. Um, I think the long-run consequences of this, as frequently as the case, um, when we begin to engage in bailouts, the kind of like indiscriminate nature is we, we, we for, will have a secular decline in productivity, which will mean we'll have a secular decline in uh, and, and, and wealth and income inequality, uh, because basically uh, how we allocate capital is almost uh, based upon it's what's path dependent. Whatever we left, whatever, whoever we lend to yesterday, we're going to continue to lend to today, which means that there'll be less available for innovators in the future. So the, the economy doesn't really, we don't let the markets clear. We keep interfering with the market clearing process. So we inhibit and impair economic growth because we don't like the market clear. I, I've insisted that if, that one of the things that like Clinton benefited from um, when he became president uh, in 92 was the passage of FIREA in 89. FIREA is, is, was the bill that basically finally funded the creating of the Resolution Trust Company where the government went in and, and, and shut down all the failed savings and loans, failed financial institutions, and, uh, and liquidated them, and liquidated their assets and paid off depositors. Um, and uh, so they basically allowed markets to clear. They put a fire sale in for 
all the assets that uh, that these uh, zombie institutions held, and they all were priced to market. And as a consequence of clearing the market, we saw the economic growth we saw during the Clinton administration. So I think I I, I think that it's it's a pity to me that so few are willing to that give all the credit to Clinton and give so little credit to. I mean, if you look at what Clinton did in his first term. You know, besides the fact that he's a great orator that gave wonderful speeches, is basically he had a marginal increase in taxes. It was not significant. It was a small tax increase. And that was about the only thing he got passed, you know, before uh, Gingrich uh, took control of the House with his contract with America because of the initiative of Clinton tried to do to basically nationalize the health care system. So Clinton marginally raised taxes. Uh, and if people think that marginal tax increases would cause the boom, no, what caused the boom is that the market got the clear. And the thing that Clinton did do is he didn't interfere with the market clearing process. So since then, all we've had is interfering with the market clearing process. You know, so we're still getting another example of what Hayek, you know, would refer to as a significant amount of malinvestment, and the and the and the and the boom is the cause of the bust. So I don't think the virus is the cause of the bust, but I do think that how we've managed it has been kind of uh, uh, silly. I, I don't think we needed to shut down the entire economy as a consequence of of, uh, of this uh, of this uh, public health hazard. Uh, so going back, my I had a question. So the clearing was that a result of the 1987 crash? Uh, no, the clearing of nothing. The, the, the 1987 that was a that was the flash crash, the October '87 crash. Uh, right. People attribute that to different reasons: uh, portfolio insurance and other type of uh, quantitative trading strategies in October '87. So I think the I think the 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 uh, the we had had uh, you know actually this was a problem that the administration Reagan administration passed on to the Bush administration. Uh, in the in the in the when we when we deregulated the financial services industry uh, at the beginning of the Carter in 1977, uh, because we had high inflation, there used to be financial institutions had what was called a red queue. A red queue limited how much they could pay on deposits. Uh, so what happened was when we started having inflation in the 70s, uh, Merrill Lynch invested this cash management account where instead of you putting your money in a bank, you're going to have limited liquidity and give it to them and they would buy treasuries. And treasuries were yielding significantly higher than bank deposits or savings and loan deposits could offer. Uh, they were limited by government. So in the, in the 70, in 77, Carter, I think, removed the limit on rate Q so financial institutions could charge whatever interest rates uh, they wanted to charge. And then in 1980, there was another act uh, that basically expanded the type of investment opportunities that that savings and loans and banks could invest in, um, and uh, so uh, uh, I had calculated in 1980 uh, that that actually in, in, in like the, by the end of the Carter administration, savings and loans were already had negative economic net worths, but they were earning accounting income, uh, and the Reagan administration's initial response to the economic insolvency of the industries was not to allow them to fail because one of the things that we say, we don't allow financial institutions to fail because we say since they serve a vital role in the payment system, 
the unique institutions because of their role in payments. So because they have such an important role in payments, we don't allow them to fail and there's no real bankruptcy process that creditors can, 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 can facilitate. It's more regulators come in and basically say, you're not in compliance and a regulator you know, will shut you down. Um, so to supposedly not impair the payment system. So what the Reagan administration did in the beginning was basically as what governments usually do and almost always do is, you know, they, they you know, kick the can down the road. Um, and so they engaged in what was called like a regulatory accounting. It was called RAP accounting rather than GAP accounting. GAP was already crap, you know, and RAP was even crappier than GAP. So, so at that point in time, uh, they basically created all these different accounting mechanisms to make dead institutions look like they're not dead, uh, and the problems grew throughout. They, 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 the hope was, as is always the case, the wishful thinking theory of, you know, if you hope, if you wish hard enough and long enough, if your wishes come true, that was basically the policy, was the wishful thinking school. And it didn't work out, and it got to the point where there were real estate bad, deals going bad, there was so much of bad allocation of capital uh, that uh, it started stunting economic growth that hurt it in certain regions uh, pretty significantly. So finally, the Bush administration dealt with it by saying, you know, we have to do something about it. And in 1989, as, as a result of that, they passed this FIREA, which created the Resolution Trust Corporation, which was run by Bill Seidman. And Bill Seidman began the process of you know, in the beginning, they hired like asset managers and things like that to try and figure out the assets. So in the beginning, they, the process was kind of like, how do we maximize the value of the assets? But quickly, they learned the best thing to do was just let the market clear as much as possible. So like in 91, began like in earnest, the market clearing process. And a matter of fact, if you take a look at, uh, you know, economic statistics, uh, you'll find that... Uh, when, when, when Clinton had, was inaugurated, the economy already had been into a recovery for about at least six months, uh, six, seven months, and it was a pretty decent recovery. So it was just too, the recovery was too late for Bush to get reelected, you know, in addition to Bush's problem with the fact that people read his lips and, uh, and they determined his lips were lying. So, uh, you know, but Clinton inherited, you know, good circumstances and, 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 and he stayed out of the way. So his, to his credit, he stayed out of the way. And then, and then the next, the next crash was in 2000, right? The, the dot com started in 1999. Yeah. The, 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 the 1999 was the, from the dot boom to the dot bomb. Yes. So, so approximately every every ten or so years, then two thousand eight. I don't, yeah. I don't know if every ten years, you know, in the in the, in, in, in the uh, you know, we, it's interesting. In back, what we have right now, to some extent, or what we had at least prior to this incident, the last couple of years, uh, with all the IPO companies coming out that that are money losing companies, and we compare that to the dot bomb, the two things we have in common. Prior to the year two thousand. What Greenspan began to be concerned about were permanent government surpluses and the deflationary impact of government, permanent government surpluses. And so Greenspan was printing lots and lots of money. Um, so, uh, 
So we inflated an asset bubble through all the money printing for the fears of, of deflation. Matter of fact, even in the early 2000s, there was this big fear of deflation. Uh, and so the government continued to have the money printing process accelerated. And then they got to the point where they said, maybe we did too much and maybe they adjusted too much, too, too much, too quickly and abruptly that facilitated the 2000, 2008. So, you know, so we, we, we go from bubble to bubble because we print money, you know, so in, in, in you know, in 1990, late 1990s, it was the dot, it was the dot com, dot com. Everybody became, people were, people were quitting their jobs to basically become day traders in tech stocks. So if you take a look at like the trading activity, for example, like in, 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 in like a Schwab at that point in time, you know, Schwab's price exploded and then contracted because everybody was getting rich day trading stocks. So the people who got rich and then bankrupt day trading stocks got rich and then bankrupt flipping houses, uh, you know, in the, in, in, you know, in the mid 2000s. Uh, but what facilitates this is really, you know, cheap money, easy money policies and the whole structure of the financial system because it's the only system that really has the liabilities, none of the liabilities are really placed or priced by the market. This is the problem. There's no market discipline in financial services. While, while they do, in the interbank market, generally the assumption is that if anything happens in the interbank market, there's an, there's an expectation of a bailout. Uh, and for people who lend money uh, in, 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 in uninsured liabilities in the financial system, they also have the expectation of a bailout. So given the fact that priced into these liabilities is the expectation of a bailout, and so far we all, we've always had bailouts, so it's reasonable to price in as an expectation of a bailout, the pricing of the liability structure of financial institutions are heavily subsidized. You know, one is because they have cheap deposit insurance, so all the liabilities they get from the deposits are subsidized because the premiums they pay to guarantee those deposits are much less than the premiums would cost if they had to buy that deposit insurance in the marketplace. And then initially, they get more cheap borrowing under the assumption that they're going to be any other creditors that have basically unsecured think that they really have a put back to the government. And so far, the bet that you have that put back to the government has been a pretty good bet. So the whole liability of the structure of financial system lacks any sense of market discipline whatsoever. So it's, it's kind of curious in the structure of the financial system, you know, that we consider, you know, the, the operating system for our capitalist system is a system that has absolutely no market discipline embedded in it. Nobody cares when they go in to deposit money, the credit quality of the bank they're depositing money in. They don't give a shit. So nobody cares whether it's an A or F grade, you know, zombie institutions, you know, in the uh, you know in the in the in the eighties, you know, when the government had shut down an institution, you know, and and basically were operating it while they were liquidating the assets, uh, they still getting the deposits. As a matter of fact, some of these zombie institutions were raising the cost of liabilities for the rest of the financial system because they were just trying to attract money, uh, and uh, so it's a very perverse process. So. You basically have, and right now, if you can sit back and see even how the government has stepped into the repo system, you can see Wall Street also 
their liabilities are not priced by the market. Wall Street has an expectation that in case something happens to the deterioration in the quality of their balance sheet, that the government is going to make their source of financing cheap. And also the hedge funds also have the same expectation because they run very high, many of them run very highly leveraged positions. You know, all these long, short, all these different, different hedge funds that engage in highly leveraged strategies. I mean, they are heavy users of repos also. So they also have the expectation that when things go bad, the government is going to subsidize their liability costs as well. So the whole financial system, okay, is a system with an expectation that the liabilities are not really subject to market discipline. For everybody else, there is market discipline for them. So for the 1%, there is no market discipline uh, because, because they know they're going to get bailed out pretty much no matter what. So basically they feel, they feel safe that there's not going to be many repercussions no matter what they do. Correct. Right? Well, it began the, the Greenspan put, the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, the Powell put. So, uh, so yes, they, they assume that their downside is limited by the government stepping in. So right. it, encourages a lot of, it encourages a lot of speculation. If you take a look at like right now, if, if you look like um, the performance of like broader indices versus like the, uh, like uh, the, what's called, some people call the, you know, the, like the MAGA F stocks, you know, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Google, uh, Apple, and Facebook, you'll find that almost the entire appreciation of the stock market resides in those stocks. And right. the, for the other stocks, this, the stocks have not really performed super well. And what you're seeing now is if you take a look at the, if you, took, if you take a look at national income accounts, national income accounts are showing that basically national income of corporate earnings has been flat for about five or six years. So if you take a look at how much stock prices have performed relative to how much earnings have increased, you know, you'll, fade, you'll see that what people are doing is they're not paying for the expectation of higher earnings. You know, they're paying for, you know, they're paying more for the same dollar of earnings because the Fed is basically financing those positions and insuring against losses. So that has been the expectational framework of people is that the Fed was going to be, if you, if, you, if you had the right stationary on you, you know, I'm BlackRock, I'm Blackstone, you know, I'm Goldman Sachs, I'm Morgan Stanley, I'm any major money center bank. You pretty much well know that you have the expectation is that whatever happens, you know, the Fed is going to come in and bail you out. You have insurance. Exactly. That you don't pay for. Right, exactly. Um, so my next question would be, so what's, I, I've been watching the news and it seems like the government is just printing money hand over fist now, right? Uh, yes. The Fed has expanded its balance sheet a lot. Uh, some of it they're facilitating through the banking system with, you know, but I, I don't even know the nature of some of these loans and what all the provisions are with respect to when a loan will qualify as a grant if you meet certain types of conditions. Um, but yes, the, what, 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 what is clear is the, these, these, these are called, uh, these are really investor bailouts. Uh, for many companies, I mean, for any public company, you know, any public company that has a positive value, stock price today, that means they have equity. So why would you subsidize their borrowing costs if they already have equity? If, 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 if they should either be, you know, they, they should either be doing one of two things. They should either be going into a bankruptcy process of prepackaged 
and restructure and reprice their capital structure, you know, and let the consequences fall. But that has nothing to do with saving jobs, okay? You know, you, we, we, the whole point of the bankruptcy process, unless it's a liquidation process, uh, is that it saves jobs while you're repricing the capital structure. That's what people don't seem to get to understand, is that the process is designed actually to, to, to protect the payroll, okay? And who takes the hit are people, and it's a, just a repricing of the capital structure. So that's what's supposed to happen. That's a market process, okay? So apparently the government doesn't really believe in the rules it's created for a framework for negotiating when claims inside a capital structure have to be repriced and all the claimants have to negotiate the framework for repricing their claims in the capital structure. And they do all this without interfering with the operation of the company. So they, they, should, they, should, they should just let that process work. And for po- companies that have a positive equity value, they should just dilute shareholders. So if they still have property stock and they need money, they should go back into the capital markets and raise money. And whatever the consequences are for the shareholders, those are the consequences of the shareholders. And the shareholders should absorb that. That's their role. That's their role. That's why they get all the upside. So is to take is to take that risk. So we're perverting how the whole we're perverting the entire pricing process of capitalism now. Right. So the government is constantly interfering with the natural process that should be taking place, right? Correct. So what's what's I mean, there, there are a lot of sophisticated investors. There are a lot of investors who know this very, very well. You know, yeah. it, it's curious that our Commerce Secretary, I mean, Mnuchin's a, a sophisticated ex-Wall Street guy, and Wilbur Ross made his money, made his living off doing bankruptcy investing and bank, first bankruptcy advising and then bankruptcy investing. So they really understand how this process works, but they'd rather, you know, bail out their friends and that trust the process uh, that 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 they that got them all very rich. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, so what what are you what are we looking at for the next six months year? What what do you, how do you feel? Where are we headed now? Uh, I, I think we're going to try and uh, you know it's, it's it's hard to predict exactly where we're going because of the fact is we don't know how this virus is mutating. Um, uh, we don't know whether there's going to be a second wave. Uh, we, we, our ability to respond is kind of limited by the fact that we don't have enough data. And the reason why we don't have enough data is we don't have enough testing. So if we had more testing, we'd have enough data. But because we're so behind in the testing, we're so behind in learning. Uh, and it seems that our ability to do sufficient testing to learn a lot doesn't exist. So at this point in time, so given the fact, I think, so everybody is just basically speculating. People are building models based upon bad data and then yeah. correcting those models as the data improves. But I got to assume that a lot of the data is very bad. It's very bad in a number of ways. And the fact is, you know, how we're attributing blame and deaths, you know, we probably, we probably don't know very well whether how many of the deaths are really the primary cause is the virus, or it's a secondary or tertiary cause. And we really don't know how many, how many people who are either both symptomatic and asymptomatic that are out there in the population. So we really don't know what the mortality rate is. You know, my best guess is there are a lot more people have it than they think, and that the mortality rate is pretty low, but that doesn't mean it will mutate. 
and a way that will become even deadlier. Uh, and it also means that if it does mutate, by the time we invent, invent some sort of vaccine for one strain, okay, another strain will be circulating in the population, and that vaccine that worked for one strain will not work for the mutated strain. So, uh, you know, viruses exist and circulate throughout history. Uh, and, uh, you know, probably the best strategy is just to let them play its course. And that counts, might sound kind of like cruel, uh, but the reality is as a society, you know, we can't absorb the course and we really don't know how many lives we're actually saving. So that's the best point is we don't really know how many lives are saved because of the lockdown. We have no data to demonstrate that we're really saving a lot of lives. Uh, and uh, so, you know, given the absence of data and given what seems to be, you know, a, 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 a fairly low probability, a very low probability of death, it seems to me not that we should do nothing. It seems to me that this is like uh, an, an extremely excessive response. Uh, you know, to what is a tragic uh, pandemic, but the collateral damage of this pandemic uh, will be something that people are not considering today because everyday people are just happy they're alive uh, and wait for the next day to happen. But, you know, once we people are convinced that we've overcome, you know, the, the, the health crisis, and then when they got to deal with what, you know, their, their economic circumstances look. Uh, you know, at that point in time, people will evaluate the fact that we haven't had a good discussion on cost-benefit. And, and, and to sit back and say, you know, cost-benefit is like cruel and crude and whatever, you know, we, we, every time we design any products, we are, there's always trade-offs involved in all decisions we make. So we can design a car, you know, that if you get into an accident, no one would ever die, uh, you know, but that car would be costing, you know, a significantly higher price. So we understand that we're going to take a car that keeps us reasonably safe so that as long as we follow the speed limit, we're careful, you know, if we get into an accident, we're not going to die. So we take these proportions, but nobody's asking for a car to be built. Nobody will pay for a car to be built that will guarantee them that they will never die no matter how fast they go. Um, there is no market for that. So people are pricing in the risk associated with it. And we should just trust that process that people will, will price in the risk reasonably well, rather than having the government authority come in and price risk for everyone. So, uh, you know, we got to assume that we have adults. Uh, and if the population, if the popular, if the, if the politicians don't think we're adults, then them being selected are a process of them being selected by people who they think have bad judgment. So they're in, they're in office as a consequence of people with bad judgment. So, if so that sounds even worse to me that, that, that the people in office kind of like acknowledge that they're the product of being voted on by the dumbest people. So, uh, you know, so either they trust the people that put them in office or they don't trust the people and I wouldn't trust the people who were put, who acknowledged that they were put in office by dumb people. So, right. uh, you know, it's, and, and it's also kind of like the situation of like the debt. If we think, if, if we think we can borrow and print money forever, 
then it seems to me the tax code is just there for punitive reasons. So if we can just print money, issue government bonds, and spend pretty much whatever we want to do for whatever we think is important at that moment in time, then why even have a ta- why even tax anyone? It seems to me if that's the case, taxation is just meant to punish people. So we want to ask our government officials why they think it's necessary to punish us. You know, abolish the tax code and print all the money they want to do and leave us alone. So they say it has no consequence. They say it makes us wealthier. So let them make us even wealthier by just eliminating the tax code and print everything they want. And we should all be very wealthy by just them doing it. <laughs> I think that's going to work. So um, given the fact that we're probably making mistakes, the government is probably making mistakes right now. What are the repercussions of, of keeping the country closed, printing money, sending people checks for no reason at all? Um, so not, right now, there's no production almost anywhere. Uh, everyone is home. Businesses are not allowed to operate. And the government is printing money. Sounds like a recipe for bad things to come. I, I think... I think many people, I think, the, I think we're going to start slowly opening up. So I do, think, I do think that more and more people are realizing that we can't completely kill the economy. Uh, I, I do like the fact that, uh, you know, a decision was made by, you know, the president to basically monitor the performance of governors, but basically let them come up with their own plans in consultation with the federal government. Uh, you know, and, uh, and therefore states can learn from each other about what's working and not working. So what we don't want is we never want a single point of failure. So if everybody's doing the same thing, we don't learn as much as opposed to different people. You know, when, when there, was, there was a book that was popular, uh, a matter of fact, it, it, was, it was written during, I think, the Bush administration. And it was one of the books that helped propel Clinton. It was written by two others, name I, I forget, and it was called like something like Laboratories of Democracy. And they pointed out that during the federalism of the Reagan administration, when Reagan began devolving power from the federal government back to the states and gave the states the, you know, the rights to that, the, basically the Constitution had, had really given them is to basically not be so overburdened by the federal government and let them experience the solutions on a more local level. This, this, this book cited six, I think six governors who were doing a very interesting job of, quote, their laboratory and democracy in their own state. And one of those governors they mentioned was Clinton in Arkansas. So, so one of the things we did have was this experimentation of states. And the governors get together and they talk. So one person tries one strategy, another, another strategy. They share information. They learn from each other. So that's the, that's, the, that's the benefits of decentralization. That's what price discovery is about. It's about a whole bunch of independent actors trying to figure out, trying to do things through trial and error, and, you know, and, and accelerate the trial and error process so they learn as quickly as possible. And the more data we get, the more experimentation we have, you know, we learn from failure. So we don't learn from trying to prevent failure. We learn from experimenting and seeing what is produced by failure. So, and, and adequate risk management associated with the fact that if we do something, and fail, the consequences of the failure are not too extreme. So that's what risk management is called. So I think, I think what we'll see is a lot of, you know, if, if, if a few states open up 
and then we see good response, other states will follow pretty quickly. So what we got to hope for, a good sign will be that states like Texas and, and I guess Georgia and a couple of other states that are, that are looking to open up now is to see the results of that. Uh, and, uh, and if that proceeds well, we'll see an acceleration in the opening up of, of the economy. But it's going to open up in a way much different than what it looked like before the before it opened up. I mean, people are, I think people are going to basically change their, you know, their, 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 their habits. And we have to still be concerned that there's going to be a second wave. And hopefully we'll respond to the second wave smarter than we did the first wave if there is a second wave. So, uh, so I, I, I generally trust people's ability to adapt and learn. Uh, if governments let people adapt and learn, Instead of, instead of holding briefings, you know, where government tells us how wonderful job they have, really all they should do is put out data uh, and, have us, and have us learn from the data they put out. But they don't need to talk. I mean, like, like the reason why they call, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Bitcoin guy. So the reason why they call, you know, some of the people, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not really a blockchain technology person. I'm a Bitcoin person. But to the extent that, we talk about blockchain's role in Bitcoin uh, and the potential of blockchain is it's some people call it the trust ledger, the truth ledger. Okay. So, so people might not always agree with what it all means, but people believe all that's on that ledger. So uh, uh, it would be great if we had a trusted ledger that everybody could take a look at that would be easy, that would be available to everyone like the, like the Bitcoin ledger is. And anybody can examine that ledger and study it and it's open to everyone. The identities of those who are transacted on that ledger, they're protected, but the data itself is available to everyone and it's equally accessible to everyone and there's no privileged access to it and everybody believes everything on that ledger. So I think, I think, this is a point in time when, you know, trust in institutions have been so eroded, you know, that we ought to rethink the, the content of, you know, what kind of ledgers we use and who has access to those ledgers. And instead of the government, instead of, we should, hopefully for me, this would be, we would have a discussion as a society is that one of the things we should learn is that we should abandon the concept of trusted third parties. And that, you know, if you take a look at like, a judge in a legal proceeding, okay? A judge in a legal proceeding, what's the judge's role? If there's a jury trial, okay, the judge's role is not to determine guilt or innocence. The judge's role is to make sure that information asymmetry is mitigated. So there's a rule of presenting evidence, okay? So the judge just makes sure that the defense and prosecution are presenting information in compliance with those rules. And other than that, the judge is a neutral observer, you know, that has no real voice over the outcome of the process. He's just, the judge is just protecting the integrity of the process and the jury decides. So I wish that would be the role of government. The government would be like a judge in the sense of their only role is to facilitate the fact that we have an honest legend. And then the jury is the, is the population for determining what that ledger means. And they leave it all up to us, okay? And their only role is to make sure that the ledger has the type of integrity we as a society would require it to have 
So there is no information asymmetry because that's what they, you, you got to assume that that's the, if you look at that, the whole discovery process, the whole discovery process in a legal hearing is to make sure that when a jury makes a decision, they've had access to every relevant fact and that nobody has been able to game an outcome by manipulating through information asymmetry. So if you think about how the, how the whole legal system is structured in theory, I'm not saying it works that way in practice, but theory, that's the design of the system. It's, it's, it's a discovery process, you know, and the judge helps to facilitate that it's a discovery process to mitigate information asymmetry. So the jury has every piece of evidence that is available in order to make a good decision. And we trust the decision of a jury of our peers make. So I think we're gonna learn a lot from that process is the fact is that the governments should not make so not should not rule on anything. They should just facilitate the process of the discovery so that we have no information asymmetry and then leave the judgments up to us. So I so I think the whole concept of you know institutional trust and governance is something that we have a which we're not gonna have a conversation about. The conversation is going to be about the government needs to centralize more power as opposed to maybe if this was completely decentralized and whatever information that people in intelligence had or if, if, if we're never going to have a process that would have said if every information that because this should not our, our health should not be a, should not be an issue of classified information whatever the government gets with respect to anything that had a potential consequence of our health none of that information should be considered classified so whatever information that the government had, whenever it had it, should have been on the ledger. And then I, maybe we would have been, the question that we ask ourselves, if that was the case, would our response been significantly better than it was today? So my bet would be, if we ever be able to got that, get that audit, where everyone in the world, whatever information they had, were obligated to put it on a global blockchain, okay, that's a public chain, uh, and then people got to study that information at that point in time of global blockchain, would we have ever had a global pandemic? So, or would have been the consequence of a global pandemic significantly less? So we have, I, I, think, I think we really need to, again, have this conversation about global governance systems and centralization of authority. And we can't think that our problem was that authority was not sufficiently centralized. I think it was information is too, is insufficiently decentralized because authority is too centralized. And right. if information was much more decentralized and authority was much more decentralized, I don't think we would have ever had the type of problem that we're having today. But I think you, you would have to have a consensus amongst government, not only government itself, but governments would have to have a consensus to, to um, to put that information, I, I think you're right. It would help tremendously. But, but I, I think it's I think it's on the part of citizens to demand. You know, I mean, right now, right now at this point in time, I think we just got to focus on how we open up the economy. But it would be a mistake as a nation, you know, that we, you know, I want hearings. I don't want hearings to point the finger at any one person. So this is a systemic failure. So I know the politicians will point the finger at each other, uh, but ultimately we as a society need to learn how is this, we can't fix a system if we don't understand how the system works. And to sit back and rely upon a trusted third party 
with a conflict of interest to solve the system that they created and acknowledge the system they created as a clusterfuck and that they're going to clean up their own clusterfuck. You know, no, we know the answer to their problem. Okay, their issue will be, our conclusion is, we didn't have enough money and we don't have enough power, okay? So you're never going to get anything more. You can already know their conclusion of whatever they're going to do. We want more money, we want more power, and you'll be safer, okay? Trust us. So, so I really think that we need a real discovery process. Again, not to say Trump's an asshole, Pelosi's an asshole, or AOC's an asshole. You know, so we understand what was the breakdown in governance structure and how we can repair the governance structure to create better outcomes for us on a systemic basis. I agree with you. But I think, I think like you said, that, that there is a conflict of interest and um, some people believe that information and power is power and holding that information secret gives them power. And it does in a way. Um, but hopefully, hopefully we, as a society, we can understand that things have to change, that they have to change. There's no other way. It doesn't matter how many presidents come and go, the system stays the same. It's broken and it's not being fixed. Uh, so systems, our system design was not based upon the centralization of power and authority and information. So, right. so uh, it's not at all. It's, 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 it's the contrary to that. Our system was designed based upon the decentralization of, 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 of power and, and authority and a check on centralization of power and authority, a significant distrust of a centralization of a power and authority. So that's a perversion of our initial design. So that's why, that's why nobody in Washington really, I mean, I guess the Republicans did this nice thing where one day they read the Constitution. Uh, I mean, they forgot it the day after they read it. So, but at least they went through the act of actually reading it. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just very sad. There's so little, you know, respect for not just that. What, what is, what, you know, it's nice to read, the, it's nice to read the, De the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, but there's a lot more, there's a whole bunch of correspondence from the founding. They were, they, they were great at writing. They went through the, you know, if you look at the notes on the debates of the federal convention that Madison published, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, uh, you know, th these were great debates about how to get governance right. And what, what they don't want to talk about is not only the Constitution itself, but the whole discussion that led up to that document and the distrust for the centralization of authority. I mean, I, I, if you look at how they define tyranny, uh, we meet their definition of tyranny today, and we met it 10 years ago and 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, I, I, I like to say that I think if, I think if, I think, I think uh, Thomas Jefferson would be banned from Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if he was writing today, his writings would be banned, along with a lot of other of the founding fathers would find that if they wanted to, uh, you know, who knows, maybe even uh, Thomas Paine's common sense would also have been banned by Facebook and Google and would have never been able to circulate because they would have impaired that circulation uh, because it didn't come from a legitimate authority figure because King George didn't bless that document, so they would stop it. So uh, uh, I, I, I think 
I think that we already have, uh, we already meet the criteria for what a founding father would probably consider uh, a tyrannical government. And again, if, you look, if people look at their writings, uh, you know, they were not fans of democracies. That's their study of history. And that's why, you know, Ben Franklin said famously that we are a republic if we can keep it. Uh, he did not say we are a democracy. They were, they were well aware and they studied the thing of democracy. Uh, they, they read, most of the founding fathers wrote and spoke uh, and read multiple languages, you know, including Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Uh, you know, and so they were reading uh, the source documents in their original language. So these were very well-informed, really intelligent people who took the debate very seriously and not on a partisan basis, on an ideological basis, yes, but not on a partisan basis. Um, so uh, uh, they were well aware of having studied Athenian democracy, you know, and majority rule, you know, and rejected it, and, uh, and were very keenly aware of the tendency that, you know, once you have government, government tends to grow, and like any organism, uh, and uh, through a somewhat Darwinian process, uh, you know, morphs and mutates it. And they wanted to make sure that as government grew, that we, could, we had a way to check it. So those checks and balances have been stripped away, and they essentially don't exist anymore. And, uh, you know, so hopefully, uh, you know, maybe we can fight, fight to reclaiming that back. But I, but I don't see, I don't see anyone, candidates, any politicians, I don't see anyone talking about that. I don't, I don't see anyone saying, hey, let's, let's go back and look at what this was supposed to be and how we can fix this. The, every, all the politicians are just talking about, I can do this and I can do that and I, I promise to do this, but no one is talking about, let's look at what the system has become, why it has become like this and how we can fix it, exactly what you're saying. So for us, as the only power that we have is voting, right? That's the power that we have. So- Well, what I've suggested to people is that people should just vote for, I think people should send the message to Washington. I think we should fire everyone there. So indiscriminate, indiscriminate party. I think we'll sit back and say, we don't, we're not gonna play the blame game anymore with Democrats. We're gonna sit back and we're gonna agree. You're both, you're all fuck ups. So as a consequence of you all being fuck ups, we're firing all of you. So we don't wanna sit back and say Democrat, Republican, we don't wanna make this partisan anymore. You failed. And I would like, I, 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 I'm encouraging people, whoever I speak with, but it's a lot less now since I'm, I'm at home most of the time. Uh, but what the people who I do uh, either chat with on, uh, on, you know, either Telegram or Signal uh, uh, or who I have Zoom conversations with, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 when we talk politics, I say, I hope November what you really do is just vote for, don't vote for any incumbent. Whoever you vote for, independent of the incumbent, whether it's a socialist candidate, independent, libertarian, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is, just, just, just don't vote for the incumbent. Vote out every incumbent. So uh, I know that's not going to completely solve the problem, but we have to send the message to say we really want, and if, and if those people don't get the job done, throw them all out. 
And two, you know, two years, every two years, we can completely change the house. After a period of time, somebody's going to get the message, you know, that they got to pay attention if they want more than a two-year job. So uh, if we reclaimed our power, we can reclaim our power very simply, okay? Buy Bitcoin, don't hold anything in a bank, okay? Only hold in a bank what you need to spend. So convert, convert what you need for payments into the shit coin called the U.S. dollar, okay? Hold only a minimum amount of shit coins. Don't buy any stocks. Don't buy any, do a strike against the system, okay? Hold, hold enough that you need to pay for your expenses you need to pay. Put everything else into Bitcoin and gold. Uh, you probably should hold some, I can't really give investment advice. I'm not a registered investment advisor. Uh, there's, there's, one, there's this one guy that has proposed uh, uh, years ago, someone who ran as a libertarian candidate, Harry Brown, the permanent portfolio, which is basically 25% gold, 25% cash, 25% bonds, 25% stocks, you know, and now maybe people can adjust it to the 25% gold, split that between gold and Bitcoin, depending upon people's preferences, but really strike against the current system. Don't keep, don't keep money in banks, starve the banks, starve the government, hold stuff, sell only what you need to live for, your, for expenses, and throw out every incumbent every two years. And it, it's not going to take them long to get the message. Okay? They might not get it in two years. They might not get it in four years. I can tell you, though, I bet within 10 years they'll get the message. So that's better than right now where they're never getting the message. And we're only worse off because of them never getting the message. Right. So we've got to take the power back. Let me ask you something. I've been thinking about this for a long time. How many, what, what percentage of the population would you have to mobilize, get to commit to doing these things in order to make this change? Because obviously 100% of the population is not going to do it. So what would be the percentage of the population that needs to come on board and commit to doing these things, to following through, in order to create this change? I think given the fact that that's a very good question. And uh, I think in answering that question, it, it reminds me of an answer I, I gave to people or a statement I made to people. Well, I used to ask a question and answer the question. And I used to tell, I used to ask, ask the question to people in 1992, who do you think won the election? And people, everyone looks at me like I'm an idiot and they say Bill Clinton. And I said, no, Bill Clinton didn't really win the election. He became president, but he didn't win the election. So, so they people say, well, what are you talking about? So I say, no, Ross Perot won the election because his agenda won. Uh, so Ross Perot got 18% of the vote, I think, about 18% of the vote uh, in 92. But his, his agenda, Clinton, because he only had under 50% of the popular vote, I don't remember what it was, 46, something like that. Uh, Clinton understood that he would not get reelected if he didn't appeal to the marginal vote. So... I think if we can get, if we can get, it might be as low as 10% of the public to buy into this, uh, given how tight elections are, uh, that if this 10% can organize itself into a block, uh, it might have to be 20% uh, that, uh, you know, that they would have, they could make a significant uh, impact. Uh, you know, the, the, the other more recent examples, the Tea Party, 
which unfortunately got co-opted. The Tea Party, if, 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 if the Republicans did not co-opt the Tea Party and then raise a lot of money to destroy those that were the most faithful to the Tea Party, uh, if you take a look at what the Tea Party accomplished, that block accomplished, that block was able to block anything the Republicans wanted to do. So when, when, when we, if we almost had a grand bargain between Boehner and, 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 and Obama uh, when we had sequestration. And actually sequestration itself worked pretty well. And it was the Republicans that abandoned sequestration because they wanted to start spending more money on defense. Uh, but that's why government spending did not grow a lot during the Obama administration because of sequestration. And we almost had the big bargain that, that Reagan tried to negotiate uh, in the 80s were uh, tax increases for spending cuts. Uh, so uh, we, we were very, very close from what some stories reported is, is, is Obama and Boehner did have a verbal agreement and then Obama was talked out of it by, by members of his own party. I don't know whether that's true or not true, but it seems to be there's enough evidence that we were very close to a grand bargain uh, that would have had a significant impact. And the only reason that that happened is because of all the Tea Party people that got elected that, that, that cycle. So if we could revisit a group and stick with them for multiple cycles, uh, you know, I, I, I used to say at that point in time, uh, you know, when, when, when some candidates would ask me for money, uh, and, uh, you know, I would say that I think the Republicans preferred Democrats, the Tea Party. So the Tea Party was their enemy more than, that, more than, more than Democrats, uh, are. And, you know, to some extent, you know, there's sort of like this, uh, uh, you know, there is a Freedom Caucus, it's a small caucus, and many of the Freedom Caucus are sort of like uh, milk-toasty kind of, you know, I, I think they still have personally have beliefs, but they basically have decided to be a lot more pragmatic than principled on the most part. So, uh, and they justify the pragmatism that if they weren't pragmatic, they would get nothing done or no longer even be in office. Uh, but then it dilutes the consequences of what they're really able to accomplish. So I think it's more of a, I understand the reason. Uh, I mean, I think it's a reasonable explanation, but for me, it's, it's really more of a rationalization than, 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 than uh, a justif just, it's a justification of something that I think is not very justifiable. So I don't think, I think if we had, if we could have a, a, a block of 15, 20%, 10% of, the Congress and of the people that really pushed a, a different agenda that they could, that their blocking power would give them an ability to accomplish a lot, that they would have a, they would have a bigger voice in this process. So, uh, uh, we just, we just, we just, we just have to have enough people who really, you know, what, what, what politicians have been very good at doing, uh, is having our expectations be so low and making us feel so disenfranchised that unless we have a special interest that's worth fighting for, you know, the, the, the collective interest is something nobody's really interested in. You're right. It's, it seems like the average person feels helpless to say, oh, I, I only have a choice to either elect a Republican or a Democrat. 
and then the rest is out of, out of my hands. Because they peel off people, the groups, right? It's the divide and conquer strategy. Let me give this group a little piece, this group a little piece. So I'll make everybody a codependent relationship. So if I build enough codependent relationships, we're now partners. So I have created enough partnerships of all these mutually codependent relationships that basically, basically I don't need to pay attention to anyone else. And so the government pretty much says right now is here's the free lunch out. I'm going to give you some money. I'm going to have half the people. Don't worry. You're never going to have to pay an income tax. You know, so, so you'll always like more government because you're never going to have to pay for any of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the rest of you, whatever, don't worry. If I if you raise your tax a little bit, I'll find a loophole to, to, to pay you off. Uh, and, uh, and so then everybody becomes a partner, you know, in this process of that's systemically completely corrupt. So I think, I think technology can really help not only in organizing uh, a, a large group of people, but also, like you said, in creating a ledger where information can be shared and in a trustless system that people know whatever information is there is always going to be there. And we can go back and check it to make sure that it's right. Um, so I think technology has a, has a part to play in this. And, and I, I think it's doable. I was thinking that we need like 30% of people to act together and make a commitment and act together in order to um, make a significant change. But if you're saying it's 10 to 20%, it's certainly doable. I think, yes. I, I think it's under 30%. So that's, it's, it's doable. I think so. If, enough, if, if we can find 10 to 20% of the population that really cares and really has these principles, yes. If, 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 if the interests can be aligned on that percentage of people and be vocal and active, yes, I think... I think that would assert a lot of power. I think that's the way to go. 